This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Look, we all know from experience, compliance sucks. But what if I told you that there is a better way? Our good friends at ByCheck developed the first ever managed service for SOC 2. Leverage the innovative ByCheck platform and a combined experience of over 30 years from the ByCheck team to complete your SOC 2 examination faster without the headache. The ByCheck team works as an extension of your team to prepare evidence, draft SOC 2 report sections, and provide all the necessary artifacts to your team to then provide to auditors. Reach out to the ByteCheck team by dropping down into the show notes and visiting ByteCheck.com. Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. In this episode, we have a friend, colleague, and coworker in Tomas Henning. He is unbelievably technical, incredibly smart, and we talk about his background and also his work in augmented reality and virtual reality. Without further ado, let's jump right to this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. In the studio today, we have a friend that we get to actually spend a lot of time with on a regular basis. And I'm excited to learn more about his background. In the studio today, we have Tomas Henning, Director of Security Engineering at Marketa, and also Trust and Safety Advisor for XRSI.org. Tomas, it was a great pleasure and surprise to see that you're going to be on the podcast. Wanted to say welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? Doing great, Tomas. We had a conversation this past week. And as we were talking about your background, your origins, I said, we need to get Tomas on the podcast today. And we have you here. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. My background is a very, very interesting one. I started off my career and well, my beginnings is, is from Transylvania, aka Romania. And I'm a Hungarian-Romanian, spent majority of my youth there, uh, finished college there, finished uh, computer science and economy, and then got a job at a very, very young age at Skype. At the age of 18, I actually started working very, very actively with Skype. Spent 10 years there, uh, went through the acquisitions, went through the Microsoft deal that taught me a lot about the corporate world and the things that we do there. Afterwards, I uh, once I left Microsoft, hopped over to Facebook for a while, then hopped to Roblox, then did my time at Novi working on all things crypto, and now I'm at Marketa. Love it. You have a nice, diverse background, and I think a really interesting origin story. You were talking about being from Romania and also that early start in Skype. How exactly did that happen? Like, What was your introduction into tech, and where does Skype fit into all of that? So my, my intro to tech actually started at a very, very young age. And I have to credit that to my dad because in the early, early 90s, um, he already started tinkering around with computers and, and built his own software company. And I, of course, being that super duper curious kid, I was curious to see what my dad was doing and what was the capabilities that he was building on this computer thing. 
So at a young age, I started learning about computer programming and what, what all that meant to the point where in sixth grade, I started learning trigonometry just because I wanted to recreate Tetris. I found Tetris a very, very interesting game. So I wanted to recreate it. I wanted to learn it. And I'm dating myself here, but this was all built in Pascal and, and in 2D uh, graphics on, on the console. And it was really, really fun to go through that experience. And then coming to early high school, I got into contact with, of course, building, starting to build native applications on Windows and starting to do a lot more, not only on, on local and, and building local applications, but also getting a sense of networking and what networking means, what, what client-server relationships mean, what does the internet itself mean, and that is what started getting me more and more into both being security adjacent, but also starting to get exposed to Skype. So the way I got started with Skype is I just became super active on their community forums and eventually became a beta tester, then eventually started, became a moderator and then became the head of community forum operations and effectively ran forum.skype.com, which became community.skype.com and some other things. And then landed a job because I, I made really, really good friends there. They saw the potential in me and I joined the Skype developer program. And my role there was to basically break stuff. I joined initially as a QA, but then very, very quickly moved into engineering from there because of my background in, well, engineering. From then on, I, I held several roles at Skype, ending in the security team where I was focusing a lot on Microsoft Teams and Skype for Android. I, I was working on Microsoft Teams before it was even publicly announced as a product. It was a really, really great joyride because we had all the difficulties that we had to solve for, as you were thinking about it, because it's built on Electron, as you're thinking about Electron as, as an application, it was a lot of fun to go through and break Electron into many different pieces. So that, that was a really, really fun journey. You know, I think that it's interesting because I got a start in technology at a very early age also. I started working full-time for Booz Allen Hamilton when I was 19. And it sounds like you started around the same time, maybe even a little earlier, because you were so interested and helpful in the Skype community. One of the mm -hmm. challenges that I had when I first got started in working for a organization was working in production environments doing the right thing in all situations. What was what were those challenges like for you being so young and already being in like in an organization working on big problems? Working with production quality code came at a very very young age as I mentioned because I was I was observing how modern at that point uh, SDLC worked at when I was 14 15 observing my dad's company. So I started seeing a lot of the code quality requirements, the user experience requirements, why in certain cases UI needs to be working the way it used to work. But I never really got exposed to, for example, mass scale build systems or mass scale deployment systems, even for local Win32 apps up until I started working at Skype. And honestly, it was a, a very welcome learning experience to understand like how multi-people work together, right? how source control works in such a way that two of us can work on the exact same thing and we're not conflicting each other. And I was really, really lucky because the engineering team at Skype was a, a really rock solid team with, from whom you could just learn and just constantly pull in more and more information. And nobody was afraid to say, 
yeah, you don't know this, but let me go and teach you. Everyone was like super duper helpful, wanting to always lend a hand and teach a junior on how to do things. So it was just a matter of like practicing. You talk about your dad being in technology so early on in your life. Is that something that you two bond over? And what has been his impression of your ascension in technology to this date? We definitely talk a fair bit about that. So my dad still does software. He, he moved on from software to do other things as well. But he is absolutely, I'm going to say almost starstruck with, with the progression that I've had and, and the way that I'm thinking about technology today, the global scale of decisions that we make, even at Marketa, the decisions we make are, are global scale decisions. So he's really, really appreciative of both the foundation that he was able to provide to me but also the different perspective that now I bring back to him when we're talking about some of the problems that we're trying to solve for versus the problems that he's trying to solve for with, with his company and his work right now. They're, they're very, very related. It's, it's a different set of scale, and he's, he's appreciative of the different views. And how does it feel to, to have your dad be so proud of you and what you've accomplished? How does that make you feel today? It definitely feels me super duper happy and proud that, that I can say that he, he gave that strong foundation. I know I wish that I had more mentors in my life when I was first getting started. I feel like that would have really accelerated my career and my thought process on, you know, working in production, doing the right thing in technology and just being the best I could possibly be. I read about you also have a brother that's in technology who also helps push you what, what has that been like? Were you two competitors when it came to technology or were, were you more of collaborators? We were more of collaborators. So my brother took more of the QA track and I took more of the engineering and breaking track. Um, so he's right now at IBM uh, working in, in a fairly senior uh, QA role with a fairly sizable team back home in Romania. And it was always for us a, a opportunity to talk about things and have disagreements around different perspectives. Um, he was also at Skype for a period of time. He was on the beta team helping uh, a long time. And yeah, we, we did disagree on the, the quality of, of the direction or the strategic direction of certain things that we, could, we knew that we could influence, but it was a healthy disagreement and it was more of a passion style of disagreement than anything else, but we always built on top of each other when it came to things like this. So in technology, there's so many pathways that you could have taken and you chose security. Why is security at the forefront of your heart? I was always the type of person who wanted to break stuff just because I wanted to understand how things work and what can I do with them and how can I bend it to my own will. So Romania went through a very, very interesting phase when it came to the internet. It was directly, it directly jumped from dial-up to broadband. And we completely skipped several generations of technology like DSL and cable and directly went to broadband. Um, and I remember in the late 90s, my dad actually became a shareholder in the local ISP in my hometown. And we were one of the first that actually had internet at home with like dial-up modems on both sides. And it was like, we were lucky we had 56K. It was amazing. And I remember very, very distinctly that our first WAN IP was 192.168. And I was like, oh, okay, this is just an IP. And as I started reading a lot more and more understanding about how the internet functioned, I really understood that effectively what our ISP built was 
just a massive LAN instead of a like a truly wide area network that you would expect. We didn't really have any of those network segmentation things that you do now, all of those firewalls, all of that fun stuff. So very quickly, as, as I started engaging on IRC and getting engaged with a lot more communities, I very quickly understood like, hey, like I could get into other computers and <laughs> I can see I can see what the network itself is doing. So it, I, it became a curiosity of like, what can I do, do with this network? That's when I very quickly realized, hey, like you could do this for bad things, but you could also do this for really, really good things. And that's what pushed me towards the, the security career is like, hey, like don't let your front door open. Like what, why are you leaving your front door open? People can actually walk in. So let me teach you how to actually lock your front door. I do have to ask for me, because for me, my start in security was all about kicking my friends off of AOL Instant Messenger. I found <laughs> I found joy in doing it. And I know that you did a lot of testing on Skype and probably even for games. I know that you're into gaming. Mm-hmm. Was security a starting point for you there, like breaking these games, breaking Skype? Or was it more out of a passion for protecting others and also yourself? I did touch the gray side of security. <laughs> I, I will admit that at one point I have over, <laughs> over 1,200 bots that I could use on an IRC botnet just because I could. I did uh, take over IRC channels on Undernet just for fun, just because someone pissed me off and I was like, okay, cool. Like, you're not going to have fun in this channel anymore. Just so, so here's 1,200 bots. Enjoy. It was being that very, very young, naughty kid that was trying to show what they can do, but that was about it. I, I really steered away from the from the gray side of it. I did want to see what that part is like. And I did come in contact in those early years with individuals who were really black hat hackers and they were in it to actually steal funds and 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 do really, really bad things. And then I also met amazing people who who steered me towards actually being the white hat hacker and breaking things just for like the fun of breaking things, but not to use it maliciously. When you talk about the the passion that you had, the creativity, the curiosity that you had, it makes me think about young kids that surpass people, you know, beyond their years because they have passion, they have focus, and they have a personally effective way of learning. Tell us a little bit about your experiences, you know, surpassing your peers when it came to technology and learning and the internet. And what was it like, you know, talking to people much senior to you? What were those interactions like? I always felt that I was uh, growing up way too fast and that I was the more mature adult because I knew these things and, and I came into contact with a lot more things in my life faster than others. And all of it was stemmed from that pure curiosity of wanting to learn and know more about how a certain thing works. So when in high school, I was bored in programming class, it was because I already knew how to code. And I knew how to code because I found it a lot more interesting than, for example, going on a hike or being stupid with friends in a park or, or being a bully or things like that. So it really, really pushed me to want to learn and share my knowledge as well with my peers. So one of the things, for example, I did in high school is with a really, really good friend of mine, we competed who could build better software. Like that, that was the competition between us is we both built forum software and we were like competing against each other, a friendly competition, of course, 
who could build better and have better ideas on how to actually get the problem done. And it was these type of conversations that pu pushed us and pushed myself. And when more adults saw this, the more mature adults were like, how can I teach this kid? How can I, I give them more knowledge and more things to learn about? And this is where I was really lucky with some of my professors, primarily in high school, that helped me learn a lot more because they, they saw the opportunity, they saw the passion. And of course, in college, I had the professors who were like, no, 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 you need to slow down. Like, you, you don't know anything. Like, you think you know, but you really don't know. I, I ran into that as well. Proved them wrong quite a few times. But effectively, it, it's, it's a matter of like who your mentor is. And always you should try to seek out a mentor who actually believes in you and wants to accelerate you. Also, when you look at technology, you're talking about growing up too fast. When you look at technology, there's even more opportunity today than there was back in the 90s, the 2000s. And, you know, even in 2010s, like there was a lot of information. But now, 2021, here we are, there is like information overload. If a kid truly wants to learn about technology, they have an abundance of resources. I think that this is a really awesome thing. Kids and teens and adults, they have access to all of this technology and, and resources. But that can also serve as a bit of a negative opportunity. We were talking about some of that dark and gray side of cybersecurity. What are your thoughts there when it comes to exposing kids to hacking, exposing kids to social media and giving them that access to really run wild across the internet? The youth of today is, is a very, very different youth than when we were kids, right? And, and growing up with a smart device in your pocket, you're always connected to the internet, you're, you're always part of information overload, can definitely play a number on, on a young mind like, uh, like a kid. Because of this, I, I joined XRSI and funded their child safety initiative so we can actually think through the implications of what a connected world, but also what an AR or VR world can actually do to a young mind. And here, think a little bit about it in this way. A child that is between 2 to 8 or 9, between 9 to 12 to 13, or 14 to 18, is very, very distinct, very differently developed, very differently influenceable. So how are we thinking about like privacy for these, these kids? How are we thinking about enabling them to make mistakes in such a way that it's not permanently burnt into the records of the internet and they can be shamed for saying something when they were five years old on the internet? So there's a lot of thinking that goes into both that of how to make sure that they have the opportunity to make safe mistakes and they're not going to be reprimanded for like being a kid. A kid should be able to make mistakes and fall down and graze their knee, but also make sure that these kids are not abused. If you look at the amount of data that is being collected on the internet on, a, on an adult, for example, is it appropriate for that amount of data to be collected on a child that's 10 years old and wants to just browse the internet or worse, they want to use a VR headset. And now you're, you're learning a lot about that kid and, and going all the way down to like movement patterns and all of that stuff. You could literally track that kid's growth cycle all the way up until they're adults. If you, if you really had them use your device for a long extended period of time. So what we're doing with XRSI is like really pushing 
privacy frameworks, really pushing guidelines and, and well thought out patterns, not only for the big companies, the, the Facebooks, the, uh, the Playstations, et cetera, that they should implement into their VR headsets, but also to game manufacturers. So if you're making a game, what are the things that you should really be thinking about? But more importantly, and this is the biggest thing that I personally talked about is giving a lot of information to parents. So how do you inform the parent to make sure that they can look out for the telltale signs of online bullying, grooming, all those negative things that can happen to the kid or the community that, that your kid is trying to be a part of? How do you get to better understand that world that they're going to be getting into? You know, you're really striking a nerve with me. I have three daughters and I'm constantly thinking about their privacy, their information on the internet. As you go through human history, you look at the commodities, you look at sugar and spices and salt, and then you go to coal and then you get to oil. But now the big commodity in the world is information. How do we sort of pull the reins back? Because right now I feel like the world is becoming so interconnected, like leaps and bounds more interconnected than we were kids. And now kids have access to information, but then also people have access to information about us, about our kids, about our families, about our habits online. How do you think we need to start thinking about information on the internet? Every single individual needs to, they themselves say, this is okay for you to know about me. This is not okay for you to know. The way I approach it is I have a very, very public persona that is a persona, that is my Twitter feed, that is my LinkedIn, and it is what I want you to know about me. But I also have my personal life. And I don't talk about that online. I don't, I post about those things online. I don't post vacation photos while I'm on a vacation just so people know that I'm not at home, right? And these are some very fundamental things. And I really strongly believe in order for these type of patterns to emerge in the next generation, in the next generation of parents, it needs to be taught at a very, very young age. What is appropriate to be done online? What you don't post, what you don't share with a friend, what are the things that you, you should be doing? What is okay to be posted publicly? What is something you take to WhatsApp or Signal or whatever other encrypted communication method that you want to use and educate, right? And in my opinion, the biggest thing that needs to happen, which I'm really hoping with, uh, with things that Apple is doing, is give control back to the person. With, when it comes to my data, and it's my privacy, it is my data, I need to consent for you to use it for your own profits. So I'm really hoping with the changes that Apple is bringing, the whole market will very quickly pivot towards, okay, cool. Well, you're getting a free product because you're consenting to actually using your, selling your own data to the company so you can get a free product. And in a lot of cases, it's just to drive ad revenue. So I'm hoping companies will change their model of like, okay, cool. If ad revenue is not an opportunity, then yeah, cool. I'll pay $2 for ad-free experience or, or a, a well-defined period of, of funds for an ad-free experience. So it needs to start literally with people putting their, their feet down and saying, nope, you can't have my data. That's it. It's really interesting because a lot of my friends outside of cybersecurity, they talk about how good the ads are for them. Like they'll log into Instagram and be like, wow, 
Instagram knows exactly what I want. And then they start buying a certain type of product, then introduce new behaviors and Instagram and these other social media platforms are learning and adopting to those new behaviors and giving you even more content. But I think, you know, one of the interesting things that I know that you are well versed in is XR. And I didn't really know about that term until recently. What does that mean exactly? And how does that apply to like, the future of how we look at things in reality and even in virtual reality and games and whatnot. Mm-hmm. XR is an umbrella term and of the of the combination of augmented reality and virtual reality. Let's talk a little bit about some frightening scenarios that may happen. Let's say tomorrow a company comes out with amazing AR glasses. Everybody's using them. They're super thin uh, and they're amazing. Like super stylish and whatnot, you can walk down the street and like see everything that you want that, that is truly customizable. And now virtual ads start popping up right in front of your face. Or you're driving and a hacker hacked into your, your AR glasses and you can't see out, out anymore and you hit a tree. Or you're wearing VR goggles and you're on an oil rig trying to fix something and an attacker tricks you into walking off the platform because they know exactly where you are, they have enough data for them to manipulate you. Or worse, they could start doing a lot more subliminal messaging, which has been proven, by the way, that it is effective, like, and, and start cutting in, into certain keyframes, certain uh, messaging to alter your psyche, or actually start tormenting you. This type of attack is a lot more uh, viable at, at young kids who wouldn't even know. So I, I kind of feel that with the AR and VR space, let, let, let me take a step back. We as humans believe what we see. We trust our eyes implicitly, and that's the way we're wired. The moment we're going to be putting on augmented reality or virtual reality glasses, we're effectively tricking our mind that, that our, our reality is something now different. But that also gives attackers an avenue to tack something that we trust the most, which is our eyes. And sometimes this, doing that disassociation and making sure that we keep it in mind that, hey, whatever we're seeing is actually not true, is easier said than done in practice. So I'm very curious to see how that whole industry from a safety perspective will evolve, because right now it's very much in its infancy. And there's going to be a lot of really, really hard problems that need to get solved before they can be allowed to become really, really mainstream. I think you're 100% correct. When you put on an Oculus rig and you're playing a scary game, even though you know you're playing a game, there are parts of your brain that get afraid. There are parts of your brain that react like you're actually in this world that has something that's attacking you. So I would imagine that VR is almost like a direct plug into the brain. And so you could do all types of interesting things with attacks. When you think about the attack surface of VR, XR, you think about how the world is more interconnected than ever. What are your thoughts about cybersecurity and how do we get ahead of the attack surface and make it so that the internet is more safe for our kids, for our peers, our friends, our loved ones, and everybody else out there? This is why I joined XRSI, um, because there needs to be a strong voice that talks about these problems. Because right now, if you go and buy an Oculus Rift or, or you go and buy any other VR headset or AR headset, there isn't any literature about how to maintain safety. 
how do you really limit yourself and mentally prepare yourself for these type of things? But there isn't also any literature about like, how are they protecting you? What is the review process under which they make sure that that headset itself is not hacked or is not really hackable? The Oculus Quest, I think, got jailbroken in two or three days after the release of it. So how do I really know that this device that is connected to the internet is something that I can truly trust? It doesn't necessarily have the same level of security as, for example, an iPhone does. So what I would love to see is the big companies that are like really funding a lot of this research and a lot of the work that goes into producing these devices to do a lot more funding into organizations like XRSI and similar places. So the real discussions can happen around what do we actually need to build to make this a safe world, an unhackable world as best as possible, so everybody can enjoy it without having to live in fear? And what are the level of, levels of education that we will need to do at different ages to make sure that everybody knows what is okay versus what is not okay. And I'm not saying that there's a golden recipe here because culturally people are different. What's going to be acceptable and normal in Europe may be very different from what it is here in the US. But what worries me is we're not even having these conversations outside of these nonprofit organizations that are really trying to push this topic across the board with, with large companies. Tomas, there's someone listening to this podcast that much like you is passionate about cybersecurity. They might be early on in their cybersecurity career and they're listening to your story and they feel like you are them and they are you at the same time. They, they, they feel very similar to you and they're listening to your story and they're thinking about that attack surface and they want to make a difference in this world. What piece of advice would you have for that person that wants to make an impact for society and cybersecurity. Don't give up. Don't be disheartened by the fact that what you're doing may actually feel that it is in vain. It's actually not. The more people who voice these objectives, these perspectives, they, they tweet more about it, they, they do more research into it, the better. It's, it's a particular area where we need a lot more people to come to the table and say, yes, this is something I'm worried about. This is something I want to hear more about. Yes, company X, Y, and Z who produced this particular headset, tell me more about these particular areas of concern. Let's hold these companies accountable and ask them for more information together because with a collective voice, we can actually make an influence here. Tomas, thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us today and giving us a masterclass about your life, about augmented reality, virtual reality, XR. And for the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the great things that you have going on in your life, what are the best ways that people can do that? The best ways to, to keep up with me is LinkedIn and also my Twitter, which is just my full name at Tomas Henning. Great, Tomas. Thanks again for jumping on the mics with us. We'll be sure to drop your LinkedIn and Twitter in the show notes, and we'll see everyone next time. Thank you for having me. If you enjoy our content, it would mean so much to us if you shared this episode on social media, told a friend, or wrote us a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. 